let's jump in. So we're doing, this is book two. So if you've been, has anyone been here the last three weeks? Ryan, Mary, yeah, in a row. Yeah, so we, we, we started Mere Christianity with The Legacy of C.S. Lewis. We did that. Then we did book one last week. Now we're going to do book two. So if you recall, these were like little radio broadcasts that he did over, you know, over different periods of time. So what you'll notice is you'll see some ideas in this one that were also in book one. So there's a little bit of crossover. But it's mostly new, and uh, there's definitely some good stuff in here, some stuff that you'll be familiar with. But uh, it's a lot, so let's, let's just jump straight in. Um, there's going to be five sections. The first one is the rival conceptions of God, basically other options to God. Uh, we'll talk about the invasion, get the shocking alternative, the perfect penitent, the practical conclusion. So, um, you know, these things are all headed up with nice little themes. But um, so we'll talk about this idea of what other options there are to God. And so uh, where we ended the last time was basically establishing that there had to be some bigger mind or greater power or something higher that sort of organized all this. And so we kind of looked at the universe as a cue to uh, there being, you know, basically a higher power. But that doesn't say anything about what that higher power is, if that's God, if that's a theistic God, or that's a whatever kind of God, and that's what he goes into now. So um, if you're a Christian, you do not have to believe that all other, other religions are entirely wrong. Um, he says that even the strangest religions contain some hint of truth. Um, of course, we believe Christianity is right. That's the blank. And uh, like an arithmetic problem, there is only one correct answer. Now, you may agree with that, and you may not agree with that. I had I was having a conversation this weekend, and uh, there was somebody that I think she used to be Mormon, and she kind of made a statement that a lot of people make. And she was like, "I mean, as long as you're doing you know good and you're helping people have a better life, then it's okay with me." And I never know how to respond to that because I want to be like, well, I disagree, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I, I, I chose to respond, and I was just like, I, like I didn't know what to do. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, what do you say? Um, so uh, anyway, just as an aside. Um, I think, though, this kind of comes back to that conversation of the primary and secondary tertiary that, you know, there, there's, you have to think of Christianity that it's right as it pertains to the main stuff. Not that it's necessarily right, you know, that there's only like one specific way that it has to be in every possible detail or regard. Um, and I think it's also true that, you know, you'll, you'll find in other religions that they've got a lot of stuff right, you know. So I think that kind of speaks to the general revelation that we all have. Um, and it maybe speaks to the conscience that exists in all of us that's universal, that's God-breathed. Um, but I definitely think you have to stand on the exclusivity of certain things about Christianity and claims that Jesus makes, that there's no way around. And we'll get to that too. Um, the majority of religions we know believe in a god or gods, and so they share this same kind of initial starting point that something put all this in order, or something created this, or something has this desire for me. And so on this point, Christianity would line up with the majority. It lines up with ancient Greeks and Romans, modern savages, Stoics, uh, Platonists, I guess you would say, people who follow Plato, uh, Hindus, Mohammedans, he calls them, and uh, Against, though, the, the modern Western European materialist who we would call, like, today a secularist, right? So uh, there's a de the definite, definite uh, <coughs> sorry, division between <coughs> monotheists. So when you think of monotheists, Jews, 
Christians, Muslims, and then pantheists, okay? And so uh, pantheists would say that God is beyond good and evil and that God animates everything in the universe, meaning everything, including us, is God or a part of God. If the universe didn't exist, neither would God. And since God is in every part of the universe, he's not separate from good or evil. Uh, that's pantheists. Bad pen. Sorry. Monotheists believe God invented and made the universe like a man making a picture or composing a tune. A painter is not a picture and he does not die if his picture is destroyed. Okay? So that's that's a real core kind of understanding. And the idea that we would have of God is that he exists outside of this creation. He exists outside of time and space. And he's not held by those factors that we're held by. Uh, and so God's existence is not contingent on the existence of this universe. And we also believe that God is separate from the world and that some of the things we see in it are contrary to his will, which is important. God is not responsible, per se, for all the evil in the world, but he also wants to make it right eventually. And therein lies quite a few, you know, difficult questions and faith questions, certainly. So, you know, this question. If a good God made the world, how has it gone wrong? Maybe the most common like uh, question you'd hear from like a skeptic, I think. Um, and so we'll seek to kind of answer that a little bit. Uh, and what he says is no matter how many complicated explanations a Christian gives for the answer, isn't it much simpler to just believe that this all happened by chance and there is no God? And the short answer is no. Um, and so I think we would reject that. If our argument against God is that the universe is cruel and unjust, then that raises the question, how have we gotten these ideas about cruelty and justice? We talked about that last week. This idea of you know morality being something that's objective. A couple quotes. A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. And if the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, or as he would say, A to Z, why did I, who was supposed to be a part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction to it? Um, I like this. A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. And so I think it's this idea that we sense that things are wrong because we're not made to, to do that. You know, we're made to, to be good or to reflect God. Um, and so, you know, he, he gets at that kind of idea in different ways. But that there's something that we have a hole in our heart effectively that needs to be filled. And that points to something um, in the same way that our conscience points to the direction we should be going in when we go in the opposite direction. I think that's fair. Uh, we feel that things are cruel and unjust because we have a sense of justice and fairness written on our hearts. That's another thing. From birth, you know, effectively people have a sense of justice. Uh, if we admit that our sense of justice is something that is just personal or maybe culturally determined and therefore not objective, then we destroy our own argument, which is what all this kind of comes back to, is hard to call out somebody for being bad or evil or unfair when you have no accepted sense of objective fairness or morality. So, our condemnation of God requires us to believe that there is a standard out there to which he's not measuring up, but the whole point of our argument was that there is no such thing as a standard. And so, to put it another way, we're trying to argue that the universe is senseless, but doing so requires us to believe that our conception of the way things should be is actually full of sense, and it can't be done. Okay, so, talking through all this stuff. <laughs> Um, the implication of this is that there really only are two intellectually consistent ways of behaving in this world. First is to live in accordance with the will of God. 
And the second kind of goes back to our, our conversation on the extension of secularism or naturalism and it ends in, in nihilism is to live out the life laid out by Nietzsche. That is, nothing has any meaning. Might makes right. So do whatever you can get away with to get as much pleasure for yourself as you possibly can. And if you get tired of being alive, jump off a cliff because nothing has ever mattered or ever will. Um, so obviously that's, that's not fun, you know. Um, and so Lewis uh, argues of these two options that, quote, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should, have, uh, so we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. So I don't know. You may agree with that. You may think he kind of jumps to his conclusion a little too quickly. I don't know. I, I you know, I've we've talked through these things so many times, and I, I, I can't quite decide. I don't want to just like take an easy argument, just like someone would take an easy argument for atheism, right? But I do. I am strapped to find another option to those two, really. Um, and if you have another option, I'd, I'd like to hear it. That's what I appreciate about Nietzsche, is he's like very intellectually honest. He's like, well, if I don't believe in a god, then like this is the most like logical conclusion of this. Which is yeah. the thing that I do appreciate about him. It's like he doesn't try to like spit it into something. Sure. Like, that it's not. Right. Yeah, I, I I'm trying to like as we've talked you know, it's been three or four years now going on and talking through these things and kind of keep coming back to him, keep coming back to them. And you, what the easy thing to do, or the simple thing, is to, to to say to an atheist like, "Well, what are you living for?" You know, and it's you know, you talk to someone that's thought through these things, and they have come up with all the reasons why that they would do this or that, and why they have a purpose and things. But, but really, at the depth of it, I, I don't know that you can say that there is any. Um, and of course, you can, and it can be temporary. You can say, "Yeah, I know it's an illusion, but I've got to I got to do something." Um, they would say, "Well, it's just as hard for me to believe there's a God," you know, but. I really do think those are your, your sort of your two like sort of basic philosophical uh, answers to this question of where do we come from and why are we here and all that is well either something created me doesn't necessarily have a purpose for me but something created me or this just kind of all happened and I, mean, I think that the end of that this just happened is, is pretty tough um, but I don't know so let's move on into this we'll get around we'll, we'll talk some more uh, the invasion sounds like a movie um, according to Lewis, atheism is too easy, it's too simple. Uh, in some sense, atheism is a belief that nothing exists that I can't observe. And uh, please don't be offended by this if you're listening uh, and you're an atheist. But he, he says it's kind of like a toddler who thinks he's hidden because he covers his face with his hands. I think that's kind of a funny idea. Um, the truth is that the real world is complicated. It may seem relatively simple on the surface. But if you start to dig down, it gets complex and unknowable and completely defies what we think uh, or know of as logic. So he goes in a little bit on like physics, Newtonian mechanics versus dark matter and quantum behavior. And just knowing like when he wrote this, how much science has really changed since then. Um, but I, I think it still probably holds up. Um, and we've talked a lot through this stuff, but I'll just, I'll kind of read it through pretty quickly. But if the universe we find ourselves in is like this, why would we expect the way we got here to be any different? Um, reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity is a religion you could not have guessed. Um, and then 
it's a condemnation not only of atheism but also what Lewis calls Christianity in water, which I would call like kind of an Oprahized or Christianity light, um, meaning you you add water to Christianity to make it more palatable, um, and it denies the just nature of God and the fallen nature of the world, and it's basically really just uncomfortable with reading the majority of the Bible. He calls it a boy's philosophy. Um, so then uh, dualism is the next blank. There we go. Uh oh. No? Okay. All right. You guys looked at each other earlier. I was like, uh, no? Okay. All right. So dualism. Uh, it posits that good and evil are on an equal level and constantly competing with each other. It's one of the earliest religious incarnations, and uh, it was uh, kind of popularly known as Zoroastrianism, which was the agent, uh, religion of ancient Iran, which would have been close to the Jewish people. Um, if there are two opposing gods... Or in book one, he calls them two opposing instincts. And there must be some third term explaining which one of the two is right and which one is wrong. And so Lewis makes this interesting argument that it's impossible to be bad for its own sake or to make badness one's good. And when people behave badly, one of two things happens. They feel guilty because deep down they continue to believe in morality. Or they get a thrill from breaking the rules because once again they're still aware of morality. Um, So does that kind of make sense? So even doing bad is a thing that requires an acceptance of good, if that makes sense. Um, and so, put another way, one can be ignorant of evil, evil, but one cannot be ignorant of good. Thus, badness isn't a worthy opponent for good. It's just spoiled goodness. And you could say it's sort of like how the color black isn't a color. It's just the absence of color. And in fact, Satan is just a fallen angel. He's a corrupted version of God's goodness. And so evil presupposes the existence of good, but good does not presuppose the existence of evil. And that mind is going in circles. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's if th- those are all fair statements. Any thoughts on any of that? Anything intelligent to add to this kind of thought on dualism? I mean, I, I, you know, I guess, yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> so, I guess it's the idea that, you know, in a universe created by God, it's not that good and evil are equal, or that they're, you know, opposing, they are opposing powers, but that they're equal powers. And I think that's um, sort of like the yin and yang concept, and that's not really how it is. You know, it's not a balance. Um, people acting in rebellion against the one thing that is true, which is goodness. Um, but you can really only be a rebel to goodness, you know, because you accept that there is such a thing. I guess is kind of the point he's making. Okay, let's jump into this. This will be the third section. Uh, in this chapter, Lewis confronts the concept of free will. In other words, the human capacity to choose between good and evil. And uh, do you believe in free will, everyone? No? Okay. okay. Um... <laughs> He has this quote, Now, of course, we will wonder that if this God is all-powerful, how has such a state of affairs come to pass? Uh, if the rebellion is in accordance with his will, then he is a strange God indeed. But if the rebellion is not in accordance with his will, then how can he be all-powerful if the rebellion does indeed exist? Um, which, again, is 
sort of a question is does he not have the power to, to change the way that things are and that people are starving and so on and so forth and that's a difficult question you know to know that so many people are in suffering and God's not changing it um, I think at the same time when you consider well like what are the other options and I think we'll get into this but that people are robots or they have no choice whatsoever um, certainly there wouldn't be any suffering but um, again one of, the, one of these kind of classic questions that I don't know that it ever really has a fully satisfactory answer, but I think there's an answer you, you land on that's most logical and that lines up with what God reveals about himself. Um, and so he, as he often does, puts it into kind of the idea of children. But it may be quite sensible for the mother to say to the children, I'm not going to, to go and make you tidy the schoolroom every night. You've got to learn to keep it tidy on your own. Then she goes up one night and finds the teddy bear and the ink and the French grammar all lying on the grate. This is against her will. She would prefer the children to be tidy, but on the other hand, it is her will which has left the children free to be untidy. That is not what she willed, but her will has made it possible. So you kind of get the point. Um, I think that God has a desire for us by our free will to choose him, but in that desire, it opens up the possibility for us to not choose him. And you know, it's one of these things where there's only so many options that he could have created people, and he chose to give them you know, autonomy and give them free will. So I, th I think, obviously, once you give a child freedom, you see what they do. <laughs> you know, sometimes they follow and sometimes they don't. And in uh, its children, which we were once children, we, we know that very intimately, you know. So, but there was, you know, when you would do things bad, sometimes you would, re you know, recognize it. But then faced with your parent, you would immediately recognize it and you'd feel guilt, right? So the same thing is true of God. And so we you know, read about it in the Garden of Eden that you know, once they realize God's there, they're like ashamed and they cover up and that sort of thing. You know, so, um, so God has decided for his own reasons, which we'll, we'll never quite know, that real true free will is worth the current state of the world. Our rebellion and the consequences of that rebellion is the cost of that free will. And so then this quote, What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. Now that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy which we use that quote in the first lesson, one of my favorites. So we find, you know, the human history is a long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. And that's pretty accurate. So then Lewis describes this as a machine, and it's, uh, I like this, is that we're designed by God to run on one fuel, just like cars run on one gasoline, and they don't run properly on anything else. People run on God, and without him, we come to total and complete ruin every single time. And so uh, what we try to put in our engine is not God. It's a lot of other stuff. So um, it's why civil civilization is a history of disaster after disaster. Why would you expect from trying to run your, or what would you expect from trying to run your car on milk? No, that didn't work. Let's try orange juice this time. And it never occurs to anyone to try gasoline. It's kind of interesting. Um, so, uh, what does God do in response to mankind choosing evil when given the choice? Well, we know this. He sends a man, and the man claims he is God. He forgives sins and talks as if he has always existed. Right, so, then this brings in probably the most famous idea from mere Christianity, 
which is this Lord liar lunatic argument, and it's called the Christian trilemma. So trilemma is T-R-I-L-E-M-M-A. And I think it's a really important idea. And there's been, you know, there's been some counters to this trilemma, and is it actually, is it four things, and are there other options, and so on and so forth. But I, th I think it still works as he, as he lays it out. But uh, this is the, the idea is based on the things Jesus said and did. He's either the creator of the universe, a madman on the level of someone who thinks he is a poached egg, or a fiend and deceiver straight from hell. If the last two strike us as unlikely, then we must be stuck with the first one. The first thing he can't be is just a good man, which is the kind of the most common thing. And I wonder what percentage of people going to church right now would agree with that concept, you know, or that they're kind of in that place, which is kind of crazy to me, you know. Um, so here's the quote that's from the book that's really good that lays all this out. Uh, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us... Uh, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Um, so, thoughts on that? Is, I guess first, is there a fourth option of what it could be? I can't remember what the fourth option is. There's like another little like L that they add into it. But. I should remember how like, uh, Muslims reconcile it. They don't think he's a prophet, but I kind of think it's the same thing that a lot of other religions do, like that, that tack on more as they said that he, he was a prophet, but he wasn't I the, the prophet. Yeah. yeah. And I think people would say, like, well, he was just a good man, you know, who had some good teaching, and he also had some things he lied about. You know, in the same way that, like, Muhammad, like, you know, you follow Muhammad. Which is to say he was a liar. Which is to say he lied. Yeah. You know, I don't know that Muhammad ever said, like, I'm the son of God. But I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to know. Um, and, then, and then I guess some other people might would say, well, how do we know that what we have that Jesus said is actually what he said? You know, could that not have just been a group of people trying to say that he was the son of God? Maybe he never actually said that or something. Right. Some, some big conspiracy of some sort. Sure. This is just like me spitballing, but if you say something and you believe it to be true, then, and it's not true, but, like, so are you still lying? Like, if Jesus wasn't the Son of God, but thought, if he truly believed, like, I am the Son of God, I don't think he's, like, willfully lying to everyone, right? Sure. So I think that falls under lunatic in, in this loose sense. Yeah. Uh, okay, we can agree to disagree on that. That's well, no, I mean, I think that's yeah. that's what he would... Right. Obviously, lunatic would suggest, you know, he thinks he's, he's an egg. But right. I think that his life would suggest that he wasn't that level of crazy. But right. 
that he was deceived or that he was, you know, in some degree, I think. So, yeah, maybe that's a first category. He's uh, a noble um, liar, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of philosophies that people hold. That doesn't necessarily make them a lunatic or a liar. Sure. Yeah. I do think, though, that claiming to be God doesn't really fall under the category of, like, oh, well, he thought he was God and just didn't know it. I think that if, if you knew any other person that thought they were God, you would call them a lunatic. I think that would be a fair word. Um, but I don't think that the way that we esteem Jesus is on the level of a lunatic. But I think that's how a lot of people would have heard him when he would, you know, allude to being God. They're like, that's crazy. I think that would be the first thing you'd say. Um, so, but I don't think it fits that he's a lunatic because his life doesn't feel like the life of a lunatic. Like, if a guy was, you know, walking down the street and said he was God or he was talking to God, that's a lunatic. It's probably because he's a paranoid schizophrenic and he's got all sorts of other issues, you know, like, but that doesn't really fit Jesus. I think the most likely thing is that he was lying, you know, if he's not the son of God, that he was lying for personal gain or whatever, but then he willfully went to the cross. There's a lot of, you know, a liar gives up the lie at a certain point. And not only Jesus didn't give up the lie, but the apostles didn't give up the lie when they were martyred. So it speaks to the, at least they thought it was true. So then I guess that leaves you made with this fourth option that they really thought they were, it was true, but I don't know. You know, like thinking you're God is kind of a step that's pretty far, especially in a Jewish culture. But I don't know. I think then, of course, then your other option is that you believe that what's written down has never happened or isn't true at all. And that would obviously, I think, be what most atheists would say is, well, this never happened. Um, and so that's a whole other argument. So, but, I don't know. I have another one where there's like a fourth option. I can't remember what it was. Maybe it's something similar to what you're saying. I mean, surely there's some other way of thinking about it. That's great. No, this is why, this is why we're here. <laughs> you're a lunatic. Um... It is. I do think it is like a useful thing to say, especially if someone has regard, you know, positive regard for Jesus. Um, I think the Muslims' issue is, is that there is only one God. Like that's their main kind of core thought, and that Jesus is another God. So that's why these discussions on the Trinity are so important. Um, but that's that's a really like losing situation. Jesus is obviously a really offensive name to Jews. I've got Jewish friends, and when you're in their in their house, they don't bring up the name of Jesus. You know, it's like they don't want, they don't want to hear that. So um, he's an offensive name, obviously on both sides of that point. This um, this will be basically times, but it's important. Um, and so again, you know, Lewis is trying to teach people across the radio and and lead them to you know, belief, and so lead them towards salvation. So that's what a lot of this is here, which we're very familiar with. But, uh, so if we do believe he is God, we're left with the question, what is the point of it all? What did he come here to do? The short answer is, is why did Jesus come? Well, he came to suffer and die, which, man, that's not why I would want to go anywhere. You know, that's I'm not picking that. Um, it had to be Jesus because perfect sacrifice is the only thing that can save us, and no one who needs the perfect sacrifice is in a position to give it, because the reason he needs it is that he is imperfect. And so Jesus, you know, you talk about the uniqueness of his sacrifice and the necessity of it, and 
the fact that he's both God and man and how that allows for all this to, to work is it's all super interesting and uh, it's really beautiful, the theology of it all. But the crux of this matter, the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God, given us a fresh start. Christ was killed for us, his death has washed away our sins, by dying is disabled death itself. And this quote, We believe that the death of Christ is that point in history when something absolutely unimaginable shines through from outside into our own world, the inconceivable, the uncreated, the thing from beyond nature, striking down into nature like lightning. Pretty amazing. We may not be able to fully understand it, but we do have to understand breathing. Oh, sorry. But do we <laughs> do we have to understand breathing before it starts helping us not die? Um, so I'll read that again. We may not be able to fully understand it, but do we have to fully understand breathing before it helps uh, starts helping us not die? No, it just has to happen. Um, I agree completely with that. Um, I think we do have to believe this before it saves us, right? I mean, we don't have to believe it before it has the potential to save us, but does anyone understand what I'm saying? I don't know if that, I don't know if I agree completely with that statement. Hmm, I don't know. I, I think I do have to believe that, that I both need that sacrifice and that sacrifice saves me before it can save me, right? Am I wrong in that? I don't know. Yeah. I don't have to believe that breathing will save me, but it does. But I think I have to believe. The transition has to take place here, also known as repentance, is not what God expects of you before he lets you back in. It is what going back to him looks like. So he says to think of the prodigal son. The father never leaves, but he does wait patiently and does welcome the son back with open arms when he returns. Asking God to let you back without following the steps he's laid out is like trying to go back without going back. It can't be done. So, to the practical conclusion. Um, some long quotes in here, so hang with me. Uh, the perfect surrender and humiliation were undergone by Christ. Perfect because he was God, surrender and humiliation because he was a man. The Christian belief is that if we somehow share the humility and suffering of Christ, we shall also share in his conquest for death, find a new life after we have died, and in it become perfect and perfectly happy creatures. All right, so the three things that spread the Christ life to us, baptism, belief, and the communion of the saints. So baptism, belief, and the communion of saints. And we do these things as we await the return of Christ. Um, Anna and I got to do a communion talk and talked about what was the actual theme of it? Like, what was the direction? It was why we commune together each Sunday, I think. Yeah. What was your kind of your example? You wrote it. I just read it.
Samuel, David, after his son dies, and he spends seven days and nights fasting and pleading for the life of his son. And when the servants come and tell him that his son has passed, he gets up, washes his face, puts on his clothes, which is like what we do on a Sunday morning, and goes into the house of the Lord and worships him. And like to me, that's what communion is, is that you, you know, you, you get up every day, you I mean, every day. I mean, we do it every Sunday. But, like, you go to church with the body of believers, and you together there say, like, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. It doesn't matter how broken the world is or how much suffering there is or what I'm going through personally. Like, I'm here today to proclaim the goodness of God. And that that's the best place you can be in times like that. That David knew that in Scripture and that I think in life, like, I've, I've felt, I've known that to the truth. Yeah, and so you know it starts with with baptism, which kind of encompasses you know confession and repentance, and uh, he separates belief off. But I mean, those are all I think part of that initial decision. Um, and the communion is something that happens repeatedly, you know, regularly. I think if there's anything that's left out, things that we do that spread the Christ life to us, I think it would be Christian disciplines, prayer, reading scripture. Um, I think that's really important. Spending time with God. Um, so if that's incomplete. And so these are things we do until we, until Christ comes back. All right, so it's sort of our conclusion. Um, here's a question. Why is God delaying in defeating Satan and bringing us new life in full? I think that's a good question. Why hasn't he done it already? When is he going to do it? You know, nobody knows the hour and the day and all that. I thought it was going to be this morning. With the tornado? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sirens sounded a lot like trumpets to me. What? I think Charlie thought it was too. <laughs> He's so scared. Did your phone go off? No. Yeah. I think, well, I may not have, yeah. I don't know that you guys had the warning. It did get the airport, though. It, um, everyone had to exit the airport, like the, and it, like, blew out some, some windows and some stuff. Wow. So glad I wasn't at the airport today. Yeah. It went through Dallas last night. I know. I'm really glad I'm sitting here right now. <laughs> I would have had to drive back, probably. Uh, so the question, of course, is, you know, why has he not done that? Is, is he not powerful enough to do it now? And what Lewis's question is, God's delay is a delay of mercy, but it will not last forever. And I'll, I'll read this pretty long quote, but, I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right, but what is the point of declaring you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered in your head to conceive, comes crashing through, comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into each creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use in saying you choose to lie down when it becomes impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time to discover which side we really have chosen. So, God could have made it easier for human beings to be good and moral, but instead he gives us the freedom to choose. Okay? And I guess it's just one of those things that's just the way it is. It almost feels like 
when you complain about rules and you're like, well, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to go to school as a kid? It's just the way it is, you know? And I don't know any other, like, smarter way to think of it or it's just it's the way that it's created, you know? I think that experience suggests that we have free will that we can choose and I think that's sort of like the basis of most of his arguments is like, well, just look at human experience and it kind of makes sense, you know? And so either we have free will or it's, you know, it's like the matrix and we have the illusion of free will. And if we have the illusion of free will, then we're just, you know, sitting in those little water caskets and you know, our energy is being used by aliens or something, you know, so. Uh, what's that? Yeah, we're little batteries, right? And if that's the case, I don't want to know. I want to keep thinking I got free will. Um, but I, it seems that we have free will, right? And so this is his conclusion to the listeners, is that it's imperative that we choose good before we are punished for our uh, immorality. And now is the time to choose. And so and I think that's true. And I mean, that's, that's, that's the gospel, is, is that that's basically, you know, the back half of this is the gospel. It's what he's presenting. Um, and it's sort of, you know, predicated on laying out, you know, what are the options out there? And then sort of an attack on atheism sort of a support of who Jesus was and then the gospel effectively, you know. Obviously, the gospel, we've heard a lot. We've heard that a lot. Um, I guess what we'll do is I kind of want to talk and see if there's, you know, some interesting things that we can discuss.